The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Susan Vaughn Groters, who is with a marvelous organization that deals with foodborne illness. It's called Stop foodborneillness.org. Susan has a Master's of Public Health in Epidemiology from the University of Massachusetts, and I like her especially because she's also got a degree in Nutrition and Food Science from the University of Vermont, so we can talk about food quite knowledgeably in terms of foodborne illness outbreaks and how to prevent them and keep our families safe. So, Susan, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. It's nice to be talking with you today. I want to ask you a question. Now, you have a role with this organization as Director of Research and Education. How did you get into this job? I think I got into the job originally because I really liked food microbiology courses and enjoyed working with people who were interested in advocacy, so people who have been able to turn something sometimes tragic into something that can be very prolific and uh, really help the nation. Mm-hmm. The, the people that I've worked with who have personally impacted, uh, have been personally impacted by foodborne illness are, are very special. Some of them have lost children. Some of them have miscarried. Some of them have lost loved ones, parents, all from something they ate. And when they come forward and want to share their story and be advocates, it inspires a lifelong commitment uh-huh. um, to helping prevent foodborne illnesses. So I think... I think I got into it both from an intellectual curiosity standpoint of food microbiology, but also from a personal passion of a place that really wants to get at prevention of foodborne illnesses. Well, you've got a terrific background for this work, and I've heard you speak. I've been to your website, and for our listeners, I just want to give them a heads up. It's www.stopfoodborneillness.org, and that's foodborne with an E at the end, illness.org. And when you go to the front page of the website, you'll see images of people who have either lost their lives tragically or they have been harmed longer than what we might expect with foodborne illness. You know, maybe a little, oh, a little diarrhea, a little vomiting. It's not pleasant, but it passes. And what we've been learning with many of these recent foodborne illness cases is that it's not that simple and that we might have an illness and we might get off easily with a course of diarrhea and vomiting, which is no fun, but still, once it's over, it's over. Or we may have reactive illness, which goes on for years, or we could have organ failure. So let's talk about some of these, the most common foodborne illnesses that you deal with. Sure. I think if you look at um, CDC statistics of the common foodborne illnesses, you'll see that salmonella, clostridium perfringens, um, norovirus, things like that, top of the list, as well as Campylobacter and um, Toxoplasmosis gondii. But what we see a lot of is um, sort of the more devastating illnesses. So people who have had E. coli 
Shigatoxic producing E. coli, so not a generic E. coli, but a, a very virulent strain that produces a toxin which can then cascade into something called hemolytic uremic syndrome, which can lead to kidney failure. And that comes with all kinds of long-term consequences if the person survives. We've worked with people who have had to have kidney transplants years after their acute illness. We've also worked with people who have had Salmonella, Shigella, Yersinia, and Campylobacter, and all have all gone on to experience reactive arthritis. That's not something that always happens when you have those infections, but it is something that's possible. And reactive arthritis is sort of an inflammation of the joints, and it can happen at different populations. Um, nobody's really immune to it, and it it can be chronic. You can go on and have joint pain for the rest of your life after having an infection with Salmonella, say. And Campylobacter can also cause acute paralysis called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Mm. So I think when people think of the stomach flu or food poisoning, that affects about one in six Americans every year, but people who then go on to be hospitalized and then and then have these long-term consequences also need to play into the equation of how we look at cost of illness to society and and how we how we make policy. Now, you're based in Chicago, Illinois, but you do work nationally, so you follow these outbreaks, and I know you work with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and you work with microbiologists at university levels all over the country, but the statistics seem to be pointing to this one in six now, Americans each year. The statistics that have come out recently say that 48 million Americans become ill every year from um, something they ate. So that's one in six people getting sick from something they've eaten within the United States. So so those statistics don't include um, people who have eaten outside the country and then come back to the country ill. That's um, that's food that's produced here that's making people sick. And that's of that 128,000 people are hospitalized and about uh, 3,000 die. So that's quite a large number when you think about how preventable so many of these can be. So, Susan, have these numbers increased over time? It's hard to do trend analysis because the methodologies that we have in place now are very different than the methodologies that we had in place when previous estimates have come out. So to say that the numbers have increased or decreased is is hard because the, the estimates, as they've changed over the years, don't allow a trend analysis. So what we do know is that people are still becoming ill from food they, that they've eaten, and we've got a lot of work still to do. So I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that they've increased or decreased. We're we're getting better at identifying outbreaks. We're getting better at identifying what's making people sick as as laboratory work and procedures and, and technologies evolve. So it's it's sort of hard to say whether they there's a true increase or decrease based on that. We know with certain pathogens based on incident data that's been collected through FoodNet, which is through the CDC's um sites. They're out in about ten different sites throughout the country and, and they look at incident rate data and from that you can do trend analysis. And what we're seeing there is E. coli 015787 has dropped. Illness rates of that has dropped. And, and we believe at stops that some of those reasons why are because of things that have changed over time as far as policy, as far as industry practices, as far as government regulation. But we also don't see that same thing happening with other pathogens like salmonella. Salmonella, um, there's a great need to reduce illness there. And we don't see that that trend over time that that illness is decreasing. What is the source of the salmonella bacteria? Do we know? Well, there was an interesting study that was done recently by Michael Batts, Sandra Hoffman, and Glenn Morris out of 
the Emerging Pathogens Institute in Florida, and they produced um, a work called Ranking the Risks. And so they were trying to get at that question of what's making us sick from salmonella? Because if we look at outbreak data alone, that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. And so if you're just looking at outbreak data, you're only getting a small snapshot picture of sort of that attribution of where salmonella is coming from in our food supply. And what they did is they looked at it and they were able to say that, you know, there are certain products that we know are associated with salmonella that are most likely causing the vast majority of illness as far as cost of illness as well as quality of adjusted life years. And they found that poultry is still a big contributor. So even though we're seeing salmonella in tomatoes and seeing it in other produce, the vast majority of illnesses and sort of that cost is going to be associated still with poultry items. And is that fecal contamination in some way? It is. It is. That is absolutely fecal contamination. When you're having it in poultry, it's most likely fecal contamination from the avian species itself, as opposed to, say, if you go to a restaurant and there's an outbreak that's associated, say, with a complex food like a salad or something like that. When you're seeing fecal contamination on something that's not a a reservoir, For that bacteria, say like birds or poultry, that's more likely going to be the fecal oral route, which is when, um, say, a food handler has an illness and they're not practicing proper hygiene and then they're serving food to a larger population and preparing food. So outbreaks and and illnesses that are associated with some restaurant-served items can tend to be related to sort of that person or that, that food worker as where poultry can be a carrier of it and, you know, it's going to be contributed or attributed to processing of that animal. Um, mm-hmm. We also, it, it depends on the produce item, too. If, if you've got a item that's causing illness across the country, that also is probably likely due to fecal contamination from, you know, an animal reservoir. Or, or it could be a field worker. So, but it always, basically it always comes back to that fecal oral route or, or that fecal contamination. I think that's interesting for consumers to understand is that when they hear words like E. coli, or salmonella, that they specifically think, okay, there has been fecal contamination somewhere along the route. Now, I also want to talk about listeria because listeria has been in the news. I remember listeria contamination being an issue, especially that we've got these at-risk populations. I mean, everybody can get sick, but there are some people, if they get ill, are going to have worse consequences. So, for example, if you've already got a compromised immune system or if you're pregnant, that puts you at a greater risk category. And listeria is one of those organisms that rears its ugly head in raw milk cheeses, I remember. There had been a case with some Mexican cheese. That had been a a source. And then most recently, we've seen it associated with cantaloupes. Now, tell me how this organism gets into these foods and what we can do to protect ourselves. Oh, well, that's a a very broad question, Um, Listeria is a little different than other um, pathogens because it's ubiquitous. We find it everywhere. It's in soil. It's in water. People can be asymptomatic carriers of it. You can find listeria almost anywhere in the environment, and it really likes cold. Mm -hmm. Um, As where other bacteria tend not to multiply in cold temperatures, listeria does quite well and is comfortable in cold temperatures. So you'll see it when you mentioned the raw milk cheese, uh, queso fresco and some other style cheeses. When those cheeses aren't pasteurized, there's no kill step for listeria. And then it's a high moisture, high protein 
product that then doesn't have another kill step. It's not heated again before somebody eats it. You'll also see it in things like smoked fish and then, like you said, recently in cantaloupe. And the way it gets onto the product is because we find it so often in the environment. And there are ways that you can pre-harvest and, as you're producing food, help to minimize um, that risk of contaminating a food product with hysteria. So ways that, you know, we deal with irrigation water are ways to help um, prevent listeria, ways to grow food and pr- process food, um, knowing that there's a there's a risk of listeria in a cold food item that's going to be eaten raw is really uh, something that food producers need to take into consideration. And as far as what you can do in your own kitchen, it's it's... It's complicated because once a food's contaminated and it comes into your own home, there you can't smell it, you mm-hmm. can't see it. There's no way to know that it's on a food product that you're eating. So the best thing consumers can do is to avoid certain food products when they're in an at-risk population. So for pregnant women, there, there are certain food products that um, pregnant women probably shouldn't eat, like unpasteurized milk and unpasteurized soft cheeses. Deli meats that are from the deli counter are still an at-risk item. So um, there are things like that that people can do to avoid risk. And with cantaloupes, I'm not sure what people could have done, to be honest, with this one. The recommended procedure for washing cantaloupe might not have gotten rid of it in this case, and that's to scrub it with a vegetable brush under cold running water, although that will remove some surface dirt and will remove you know, any fecal matter. It might not remove all of it, and so there's there's a risk of you know, getting ill, uh, even even though you might practice very safe food handling practices at home. Mm-hmm. So the source of the listeria is not necessarily fecal. Well, it is. It is. It is, and it isn't. So so it is. Um, it is found in feces, but it also um, survives in soil. It will see it in in water. It's it's all through our environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not to say it's not fecal matter, because certainly that's where we see it concentrated, if you will. Like if somebody's sick with listeria, they're going to be producing and shedding a lot more listeria bacteria, and that's, that's, a, that's a potential source of contamination. So we will see it in fecal matter, but we also see it in other places in the environment, like the soil and like water. So it's, it's not something that's um, unique to one species of animal. It's, it's everywhere in the environment. So it's a little different. And I think it's interesting that, you know, whenever we have an outbreak, what I think happens among consumers is they just say, you know, I'm just not going to eat cantaloupes anymore. Or this was certainly the case with the spinach. You know, a lot of people that I talk to, even within the food world, have said, you know, I'm still a little uneasy about eating spinach. And then recently there was an outbreak of romaine lettuce in bags. Again, the situation where we've got one farm, perhaps, doing a lot of processing, bagging, distributing across the country, time to incubate in the bags, and then, lo and behold, we have these multiple state outbreaks. So what can we do specifically about the leafy greens? Well, I think a good practice is always to wash your produce at home, especially if you've got a a head of lettuce that might have any kind of dirt on it, pull off the outside leaves and rinse. Um, the lettuce that you have with cold running water. It's really that agitation that will remove um, any kind of soil. So with a raw head of lettuce, you want to not just put it in water, but you want to put it under cold running water. It's that, it's that movement that tends to remove dirt and, and bacteria from, from food products. So that's one of the best things for once it's at home. 
The other thing is to know where your food comes from. So if somebody does become ill, you're saving your receipt so you can trace back to where you potentially found that. But there are certain practices that are in place by a large number of people who are in industry trying to make um, a, a food product as safe as possible. And um, it's tough when you have these outbreaks that are associated with one food item when a lot of other people in the industry are working very hard to make a safe product. So um, I wouldn't tell anybody to stop eating a certain food just because there's been an outbreak associated with it. There are certain foods that are certainly higher risk than others, like sprouts. Sprouts mm. are a very risky product, and right. especially for people who are immune compromised, you know, they're not something that should be recommended to be eaten because of the high risk that's associated with them and, and no kill step. People don't tend to cook their sprouts before they eat them. Right. And they've been associated with so many illnesses and so many associated uh, with sprouts that that's one of the reasons why that's a high-risk food item. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Susan Von Groters. She is the Director of Research and Education at Stop Foodborne Illness. She holds a Master's of Public Health in Epidemiology and an undergraduate degree in Nutrition and Food Sciences with a keen interest in microbiology. You know, Susan, I do want to stop and ask about the sprouts because this seems like such an odd place to get a foodborne illness. And correct me if I'm wrong, now, is this salmonella that's been associated with sprouts specifically? Also E. coli, not just salmonella, but E. coli uh-huh. is, is more of a concern because of how virulent and tough of a bug it can be. So what how happens does it get there? Sprouts? Well, what, what it's actually in the seed. What they found is it's, it's within the seed, the same way that salmonella can exist within an egg, with inside the shell. Um, bacteria can exist within the seed. And so there's no way to wash it off. There's no way to prevent it from causing illness once it's sprouted. And again, you can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it. And so it's hard to know where, how or when it got there, but, but sprouts can have bacteria, you know, within the seed that can't be easily removed. Uh, so that's why it's a high-risk product. Same with eggs. If you've got salmonella inside an egg, the best thing you can do is cook it. And unfortunately, we don't have... That's not how people eat sprouts. They don't tend to cook their sprouts before they eat them. They tend to eat them raw, so that's why they're a high-risk product. As for eggs, it's recommended that you cook it until it's firm or use pasteurized egg products like in-shell pasteurized eggs or, or pasteurized liquid eggs are a, very, uh, are a safe alternative, and we just don't have that for sprouts yet. Well, Susan, what are sprout manufacturers doing? I mean, I still see them on the market. Is the FDA doing anything, uh, any kind of screening of seeds? At the plant where the where the sprouts are produced, that's a tough one. I'm sure that the sprout industry is very worried yeah. because it knows that there is a risky product, and how FDA oversees that is through inspection. And so there are probably a, a series of things that sprout producers can try and do to sort of tackle this. But right now, the best advice is that sprouts are still a high-risk food item for those who are immune compromised and who those are at at-risk populations like children and the elderly. So um, n- not enough has been done yet where I would ever say that it's a, a product that could be eaten by those high-risk groups. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about local food. You know, there's such a, a push to... You know, as you mentioned earlier, it's a really good idea to know where your food is coming from. But are we immune to foodborne illness if we solely keep our intake from a local food system? Well, pathogens don't discriminate based on the size of a farm or based on, unfortunately, an organic label. Pathogens are 
are, are bacteria, they're viruses, they're parasites, and they'll grow where there's an environment that's comfortable for them to grow in. So, you know, buying local and knowing your farmer, although there are lots of reasons maybe environmentally to do that, and if you're worried about a carbon footprint to do that, if you're worried about pesticides to buy organic, but they're not reasons to buy a food based on safety. Unfortunately, that's just not, we're, we just don't see that um, Pathogens just do not discriminate based on the size or how whether a food is produced on a small scale or a large scale. So that's uh, it, that's a tough one, and I, I I certainly think there are reasons to buy food, you know, produced in certain ways or produced on small farms. But unfortunately, safety is not is not something that you know pathogens just don't don't discriminate that way and so neither should people if they're if they're looking at it from a safety point of view. And in some ways smaller producers may be a higher risk as far as safety measures go because they they're not under the same regulations as larger producers where there's more likelihood to be inspections from um food inspectors and uh so practices if they're not in place could be amended and can be improved if an inspector sees a need for improvement. So you know, I think I think to decide how you're going to get your food and where you're going to get it from for safety reasons is still um, is still a personal question for people to answer. Well, you know, I've been a dietitian for 30 years, and I remember when I would take calls about foodborne outbreaks that happened at you know church picnics, right, where food was mishandled, and you wouldn't see the same kind of national distribution of illness when you're relying on a local food supply. But food, mishandled food is mishandled food any way you yep. want to look at it. It's just a different scale. Yeah. And that's working with these national outbreaks. Obviously, they're not from small producers. A small producer has an outbreak is going to be small and localized, and so not as many people are going to be coming ill. So in that way, you know, the, the risk, you know, would look a lot different because it's not food that's produced on a national scale. So when we're importing food and um, shipping food, it allows bacteria to multiply and to grow if there is contamination. But again, it comes back to what you're doing at that pre-harvest and end harvest and, and all the different controls that you've got in place um, before the food is sold. And and local and national um, producers can both um, put in place uh, processes that will help, and when they're science-based, that will help uh, produce a safe product. I saw a study that looked at, I believe this was from Johns Hopkins University, there were some researchers there who were looking at antibiotic-resistant bacteria present on meat in meat cases. And I was quite alarmed. You know, it's sort of like when you're an emergency medical worker, you have to assume that everyone you're treating on an accident scene has some sort of viral infection. And I, I use the same analogy when I talk to consumers about, you know, if you're buying meat in a meat case, just assume that it's contaminated with some antibiotic-resistant infection because most factory farms do indeed use antibiotic-laced feed. And they use the, the problem with antibiotic resistance is a lot of producers who have chosen to use antibiotics are using it at subtherapeutic levels. So it's being given for things like growth promotion mm-hmm. as opposed to disease prevention. And so there are things that consumers can do to help make sure that the food that they're buying is produced in a different way. There's a piece of legislation right now called PAMPTA, which is the Preservation of Antibiotics for the Medical Treatment Act. 
And what that calls for is it calls for certain antibiotics that are very important for human medicine not to be used in food animal agriculture. Um, And certainly with the recent outbreak from Salmonella Heidelberg, the strain that was implicated in in that outbreak and, and recalls showed that it was resistant to ampicillin, gentamicin, streptomycin, and tetracycline, all important antibiotics. And the strain was resistant to all four. So that's a multi-drug resistant strain. And that, that complicates treatment for physicians. You know, people with antibiotic resistant infections are, are at increased risk of hospitalization and also treatment failure. If a doctor doesn't have as many choices for antibiotics to treat an infection with, there's a risk there. And so when the bacteria has already picked up resistance to four antibiotics, it makes treatment difficult. And so I think certainly there are things that consumers can do to ask our regulators and ask our food producers to change their practices. Yes, you know, not using certain antibiotics in food animal production is a very important start, not using them at subtherapeutic levels. And, and I want to... I just want to mention your website has a wonderful piece of information there about PAMTA. So uh, for our listeners who want more about that, the organization is called Keep Antibiotics Working. If you want to get on board with a larger group that's working to keep those kinds of sub-therapeutic levels of antibiotics out of our food system, that would be a wonderful national organization to join with. We just have a few minutes. And I want to make sure I give you a chance to mention anything that I didn't give you a chance to talk about earlier. Well, I think uh, we've covered a lot of bases. You know, just to give a little bit more information on STOP, we were founded about 18 years ago on the West Coast in California, and our mission has remained pretty much the same. We're we're, uh, dedicated to the prevention of illness and death from foodborne pathogens, and we do that in three ways, by advocating for sound public policy, by building awareness, and assisting those who have been impacted by foodborne illness. So if anybody's interested in learning more about our work or becoming involved, um, those are the ways that we try and live up to our our uh, title, which is um, to stop foodborne illness, but we also consider ourselves America's voice for safe food. So, um, And you've got a great toll-free line. Yep, 1-800-350-STOP. Perfect. I want to thank you very much for talking to us about foodborne illness. It is a very large topic. We could spend hours on it. I want to direct our listeners to your website, which is, once again, www dot stop foodborneillness.org and that's foodborne with an e and we've got the toll-free number if people suspect that they have been infected or have been affected by a foodborne illness is the first step to call the hotline or is it to call their department of health i'm um, actually the first step is to call your doctor Okay. Um, sometimes even flu-like symptoms, um, listeria, will prevent a, like a flu-like symptom in pregnant women. So the most important thing to do is to seek medical attention. If you need help uh, navigating either the medical system or the public health system, STOP is certainly there to help, and we can point you in the right direction on who in the public health department to call and what questions to ask your physicians and or your or your you know, your, your health care providers. That's um, wonderful. But if you are feeling ill, the first thing to do is to seek medical treatment. Susan, thank you so much. Unfortunately, our 30 minutes have flown by. Uh, we have been speaking with Susan Vaughn Groters. She is the Director of Research and Education at Stop Foodborne Illness. 
Thank you, Susan, for being with me today. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to close by reminding our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at the KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you, Melinda. It was a pleasure.